Heavenly Father, our Lord God, and our Savior Jesus Christ, we come before thee in this morning hour on a beautiful day, knowing that thou hast the words of eternal life. We come thirsty, Heavenly Father, much like the woman who met Christ at the well. We come with empty vessels to be filled, thirsty and yet thirsting again, but thou dost promise living water, water that will well up from within us and that we can become a source of that water to a thirsty world. Heavenly Father, as we prepare our hearts now to look into thy word together, we ask that thou wouldst fill us, that thou wouldst give us that water that satisfies, that quenches every thirst. Help us not, as was done in the Old Testament, to hew out broken cisterns that can hold no water, to, to come up with our own solutions to life's problems, but instead to realize that we live in a broken world and we can only made, be made whole by coming to thee. Be with us now, dear Lord, and open our hearts and minds to thy word. We're especially mindful of the grieving family and the loss of our sister Lily. We ask that thou specifically be with Sister Olga and Sister Gordana, Sister Nada, and uh, the rest of the family as they grieve her loss, but also understand that she is now free from pain and is in the presence of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we long for this, this, this goal, this resolution, and so we, though we're still here, walking this world here below, we, we need thy presence with us that we may one day join thee in courts of glory. Be with those that could not gather because of sickness or old age, dear Lord. Bless them even in their absence, and we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to read a portion of God's word found in Mark's gospel, the 10th chapter, Mark chapter 10. I'd like to begin reading at verse 13. Mark 10, the 13th verse. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily, I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms and put his hands upon them and blessed them. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. 
honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. I've read until the end of the 27th verse. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory and ever will be. Loving Father in heaven, we come before thee in the quietness of this morning, realizing that you are the great Lord and Master and King of this universe, the God, the Creator God and the Savior God. And all things are within your power and within your command. O oh Lord, we have once again been reminded this past week with the passing of our dear sister Lily of your promise that all of us will one day leave this earth. That all of us will return to the dust from whence we came. But there will be a great division that those that believe in you that those that have placed their trust and faith in you 
will see thee face to face in the courts of glory. And those that do not will never see thee in that majestic, holy realm. I will be banished from your presence forever. Oh Lord, how can we emphasize this more? What can we as mortals do but proclaim your word? But warn people as Noah warned the people for 120 years You were gracious for 120 years. Far more than a lifetime of a man and a woman today. And yet only eight enter the ark. Father in heaven, we firstly, as is prayed already, thank thee for your grace for your mercy, for your compassion. That in the very last minutes of Sister Lily's life on this earth, you saved her. You proved that you are gracious, quick to forgive. And we just pray, Lord, that this event will have not gone in vain for others to see. That their lives are also as grass that is cut down in the morning and withered by night. That is like the flower of grass that dries and shrivels up. And it is like a vapor that just disappears. Oh Lord, we pray, Lord, we cannot, as humans, impress that on others. We can just give your word, which is your life-giving word, which is able to make us become born again, as your scripture tells us, through your Holy Spirit. So Father in heaven, we thank thee that we have opportunities like this we can gather together in your house of prayer, in the house of worship, that we could set aside all earthly cares, all earthly businesses, activities, and focus on thee. Father, we pray none of us will be here this morning and allow your word to be fallen on the wayside of their hearts so that the birds of the air come and snap it up. Nor on the cares of this life, nor on the things of this world, the pleasures or the activities like weeds that would choke it. Nor on stony places. 
that resist the penetration of the word, but into good ground, a receptive ground, a ground that will enable it to bring forth much fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. Father in heaven, we pray for those that are here as well as those that are within hearing of this word through various media. We pray that you would touch each and every heart and remind them of the brevity of life. Because when we lose our loved ones, time seems to stand still. And we pray it does for many who are busy going to and fro. They'll take time to ponder and to be holy. Father in heaven, we pray for others that are suffering in our midst, in our church, in other churches that have been suffering with diseases and cancer and pain and ailments that you would visit them, comfort them, strengthen them. Lord, only in you we have hope and we pray that you would be their comfort and strength. Be with the shut-in, the widows, the orphans, the widowers, the isolated, the lonely and use us as your hands and feet to visit them and encourage them. Be with us now, Lord, be with our dear brother as you expound your word. Provide his needs and ours also, we ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The Word of God is unlike other books. I know that's been said before. Nothing new there. But if you consider in terms of the content that's been preserved for us, these little snapshots, as they were, I kind of consider the Gospel of Mark almost like a, a photo album for young people. I guess that's a bit more like Instagram. Little snapshots, episodes in the life of Christ one after another, each one a little tableau that teaches us something, a moment in time. And for those that were here on Wednesday night for singing, we sang that song from the junior hymnal about the young children coming to Jesus. And I guess sentimentality is a sign of older years, and I get more sentimental about these things. And you, you think about that moment and the fact that the Lord recorded this for us in his, in his word. These little children coming to Jesus to be blessed. Seems kind of mundane. In the grand sweep of God's plan of salvation, what does this have to do with anything? A bunch of noisy children getting in the way. You know, we read about the, the disciples that wanted to forbid them from coming near Jesus. He was busy. He had places to go. There were things to do. Messiah is here. And he's got work to do. 
and Jesus had to stop them. It says he was much displeased. Have you ever thought about that? The kindest man that ever lived, and yet here it says he was much displeased. What would it have been like to see Jesus angry, displeased at his disciples? One of my little boys is fairly sensitive, and if I speak a little harshly to him, it doesn't take much, and he gets upset. He doesn't like experiencing my displeasure, and I have to right away go and say, I didn't mean that against you. What I wanted you to learn from this was this. But he's intent on his father's good pleasure, I guess. And that warms my heart. And these little children, they didn't understand maybe exactly who Jesus was, but he was the kindest man they had ever met. And they wanted to be close to him. And they didn't have any of the hang-ups and second-guessing that goes on with adults. And Jesus had to remind us, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. had an interesting discussion yesterday, too, about the, the fairness, the justice of God. And how can it be just for someone to be born, say, in a Christian home and hear the gospel, and one to be born perhaps in a pagan home or one full of pain and difficulty where, where God doesn't seem to be anywhere around? How can that be? And my answer to that question was, I don't know. But I do know a few things. One, I know that God is loving. He wants our very best. Two, he's not willing that any should perish. And three, he will be fair with everyone. So whatever happens, at the end when we look over it, we'll say he was fair. He did the right thing. And things that look like injustice to us now are just a misunderstanding. We don't see the full picture. Sometimes it happens with the children that there's a disagreement and one thinks the other's wronged the other one. And it's not until the whole story is unpacked that they realize that, no, it wasn't quite as I thought it was. Of course, that happens to us as adults as well. But we're usually pretty quick to point out how we were, we were right, at least in principle. <laughs> children don't have those kind of hang-ups. The kingdom of God and how it's accepted is the focus of this portion of Scripture. It's interesting to see right after this little child, we have this account of the rich young ruler. So Jesus keeps going. He's walking down the road, and there's one that runs up to him. That was kind of noteworthy as well. Someone of position, of prominence, wouldn't run. You send a servant to run or a youth to run, but a man of position and prestige doesn't run. He came and kneeled before Christ. Can you picture that? A rich young ruler, perhaps dressed in fine clothing, kneeling in the dust at the feet of this shabby rabbi and his crew of fishermen and cast-offs of society, it would seem. I mean, that demonstrated, I think, a pretty vivid dem a picture of humility to do this. He realized that Jesus was something special, that this man was no ordinary man. 
And he says to him, good master, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And isn't that the question of everyone in the world today? How can I live forever? Whether you seek your answers in religion or perhaps in technology, that question of how can I live forever is something that humanity grapples with. When you're young, it seems distant. As you get a little bit closer to the end of your life, whether because of illness or because of age, you realize how pressing that question is. Jesus sets him straight. He says, why do you call me good? Now, that wasn't that Jesus wasn't good. But the focus was not a man. He was trying to appeal to a man. The issue that he had and the one who had eternal life and who was the source of all life was the one who created it all and would one day recreate it. Jesus puts his attention where it rightly belongs, God. And he starts with the commandments. And it's interesting, the ones that he chooses. He says, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness. That means do not lie. Defraud not, don't cheat somebody. Honor your father and mother. And he ends there. All of these commandments, good moral commandments, that perhaps there may be some that are listening this morning thinking, yes, that's me, I don't do those things. And the young ruler could say, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. As a young boy, when I first became aware that there was a God and that there was a moral code in this universe, I've kept those things. Some of them may be a little bit easier to keep than others. Do not kill is not particularly difficult. Some of the others, like bearing false witness or defrauding people and maybe honoring our parents, are a little bit harder to keep. But this, this man, and I must accept his, his answer as he gives it, he says he kept all of these from his youth up. A good, fine, upstanding, moral young man. And it says, Jesus beholding him, loved him. He saw this man. He saw his sincerity. And for those that maybe have been struggling with conversion for a number of years and don't know what it is that holds them back, they think, I'm being sincere, God. I'm seeking you. I've come to the right place. I'm asking the right questions. Listen to what Christ says to him. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. And I'm sure at those words, the heart of the young man jumped up. was like, one thing, that's it. What is it, Lord? Tell me. One thing, go thy way, all right? Sell whatsoever thou hast, okay, and give to the poor. Oh. That's pretty steep. I mean, I'm already giving alms to the temple. I'm not a greedy, grasping miser. When I see needs, I, I give. Christ says, if you want treasure in heaven, this is what you have to do. 
Now, for those that may be theologically minded, you might step back from this and say, wait a minute, so are you telling me that there's a way into the kingdom of God that involves works of righteousness? Well, yes. Yes, there is. If you can keep God's righteousness, you have no need of a Savior. But do you notice here that Christ doesn't mention the other commandments? Do you remember what Christ said to the lawyer when they had that conversation? What are the two greatest commandments? Christ boiled them all down to just two. I'm reading through the Old Testament in my own devotions, and you get into these specific examples. Allow me a little digression here. You know, it's so interesting. God lays out his law, and he, he, gives, he gives clauses and cases as he works through what is right and what is moral. And sometimes he gives explanations and reasons, and other times he just says it. He just says, this is what I require, and this is what you have to do in this situation. In other places he said, because you were a servant in the land of Egypt, therefore don't, don't, don't oppress the foreigner and the stranger in the land. And he gives a reason. But many times he just simply says things. He just lays it out for us. But Jesus takes all of those laws and boils them down to two things. And I'm sure most of you can repeat them with me. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. On those two points hang all the law and the prophets. If you can do that, but what's the problem? Christ left them out of this discussion. Why? The young man needed to see that. I think he also needed to see that he needed a savior. You see, God will not allow you to dabble with faith. You don't get to add Christianity to your life or Christ to your life. He has to clear the slate and it has to be only Christ as your life. And that's a tough message. Many don't want to hear it. Many will turn away sorrowful. Why? Someone once said that the religions of the world are not fundamentally the same and superficially different. They're actually superficially the same and fundamentally different. And I agree with that statement. I think it's very true. Every other religion will allow you to add religion to your life. Add it. But there's only one that asks you to replace it. A little child can make that decision. A little child can see the value and trade for it. He says, sure, I'll give that up for this. As adults, we get a little bit more sophisticated. We want to bargain. We want to dicker with God. We want to trade one thing. I'll give you 10% God, and let's meet somewhere in the middle, maybe. You stay out of this area of my, my life, and I'll give you this. We're much like Jacob. Jacob is such a perfect example of the human race, a pattern. A twisted, morally twisted, conniving, young man who wanted to bargain with God.
It started at Peniel. He had that vision of that ladder that came down from heaven. Angels ascending and descending on it. And the next day he wakes up and says, Surely the Lord was in this place and I knew it not. And he strikes a bargain with God. He says, God, if you bring me back safely to this place, I'll worship you here and I'll give you 10%. And he kept up that mindset and it earned him a life of heartache. And it wasn't until he finally wrestled with God and would not let him go until he knew that he had the blessing of God. He sent over everything that he had in front of him. Have you thought about that? He did what the rich young ruler couldn't do. He sent it all over the brook, him alone with God, and saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And it was then, in the darkness, in the struggle, that finally God touched Jacob in his thigh crippled him, showed him his true weakness, but in doing so, gave him a new name and a new identity. And he became no longer Jacob, the one who was the trickster, the supplanter, but the one who was a prince with God. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. Think about how odd those words must have sounded from Jesus. Take up the cross. The the modern equivalent would be saying something like, join me on death row. I'm sure people that heard that wondered what he was talking about. I mean, the cross was reserved for rebels of Rome. The ones who, who would not submit themselves to the authority of Rome. They were the ones that were crucified. And if you read into the history books, you'll read how, uh, I forget which general it was, that lined the road with crosses, each one where the Jewish rebel spiked to its wood, dying as an object lesson to those who would pass by. A horrible fate. And yet Christ says, take up your cross and follow me. What did you know about a man with a cross in that day and age? One, He wasn't coming back. A man shouldering a cross on a road surrounded by soldiers was not coming back. That cross would not argue, sentence, would not commute punishment. That cross was going to have its way until he was dead. And that was it. There was no half-crucifixion. And in saying this, Jesus also invites us to take up our cross and follow him. I don't know what that is for each of you. But I do know it means one thing. Complete denial of the old nature. That old nature has to die with him. I've been engaged in a bit of writing for the communications committee. And one of the things that I've been working on is uh, some of you older ones, or at least my age, may remember a little booklet called Ye Must Be Born Again, written by Ben Summer. It's written back in the 1950s. And the object of that book, the purpose of that little tract, 
was to guide especially young people in understanding what it meant to be converted. Unfortunately, with time, I think our ability to read has decreased. And Brother Ben's sentence structures and uh, analogies maybe are a little bit harder for younger people to grasp. So I've been engaged in, in rewriting it, breaking down the sentences to something a little bit simpler to understand. But the message is the same. The message is the same. You need to die. Why? Because there is none good. No, not one. God could not be good and allow you to get away with your sin. Think about it. Not only do you violate God's laws, but you even violate your own conscience. Your conscience tells you you shouldn't do something and you say, ah, I'm going to do it anyway. Have you thought about that? Even the law of your conscience, a lesser law than God's law, you still break. And it's true, you may not be as bad as some in the world. But compared to the white purity of God's holiness, who can approach that? How can you join a good God like that, dressed in dingy gray? Why do we need to die? Why is it important that we be crucified with Christ? Because it's the only way to life. The solution has never been about patching up the old. The Old Testament showed that. The blood of bulls and goats that was offered again and again and again. Every year. I sometimes think about that. The high priest going in to that curtain, they say that it took four men to part that heavy curtain. And he went in once a year with blood to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. There was no light in that inner room. You know, you moved from the outer court, which was in daylight, into the inner temple where there was the light of the candle, the candlestick. But then into the holiest place was darkness. The only light came when the Lord would descend between those cherubims to speak. And I wonder, I wonder what that must have been like for those Jewish high priests to go once a year with a chain around their ankle, knowing that if they were struck dead by God because of their unworthiness, someone would pull them back out to go in there and see that glow. I wonder how many dared even look at what that light was. You know, they were not forbidden to look at that Shekinah glory. But I wonder how many dared to be in the presence of one who's so holy. Read in Scripture what happened to Moses. Read what happened to Isaiah. Read what happened to John, the beloved disciple, who even leaned on the breast of Jesus at that Last Supper, and yet when he met him in a glorified form, he fell down as dead. That's the God we're dealing with. That's the God who loves us and wants to make a way, but he says you can't come in the form you are. You've got to become like a little child. You've got to give up everything. It's got to become so simple. You know, children will accept things the way that you tell them. 
Adults, they need reasons first. We ask, prove it to me and I'll believe you. The problem is God doesn't work that way. God says, you want to know? You have to do. Once you do, you will see the truth. Christ himself said, if you want to know if my words are true, do them. In God's economy, the intellect always follows the will. It cannot go first. You know, Jesus, as he went around from place to place, he did these miracles and says they all marveled. Human intellect following behind on stubby little legs couldn't keep up with what God was doing. And that's the way it must be. You must be willing to die, to live, to, to know you must try to live as he says you live. And when you realize that you cannot do it, then you will be ready to die. And in dying, you will live. And then you will know. It seems so counterintuitive. And in a way, it is. You see, the God of the universe can encompass intellect. He's greater than it all. So it follows that the way... The way to that God is not through the human intellect. It's not sufficient. It never was. But if you will do, you will know. He requires your will, your heart first. And that's what children give us. They give us, they give us their heart first. And then they ask for explanations. They're okay with that order. If we wish to know our Heavenly Father, it's got to be the same way with Him. And He was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for He had great possessions. And Christ now illustrates why it is that the rich of this world have such a hard time entering the kingdom of heaven. Self-sufficiency feels good. To be able to, or to know that you'll be taken care of, that you don't have to worry about situations in this world rocking your stability. No one's going to put you out of your home or fire you from your job or whatever it may be. And from that position of security, we're willing to give God a portion. I mean, hey, at least a Sunday morning, maybe 10% of my net, I can, I, can, I can work out a, a deal like that. But when he wants all, how many are willing to do that? But you know what? Look at the life of our sister Lily. By her own words, a life of difficulty, heartache, bad choices, cut down too soon in the eyes of the world. Yet when she realized she couldn't keep anything, that's when the trade finally looked good. When she realized that there was nothing left to hold on to in this world. And then when God answered her prayer and gave her that space to convert, she said, I'm going to pursue him. I won't let him go this time. Some of you young people don't remember John Tan. He was younger than I was when he passed away. He was a brother in this church. He also came for some 20 years to our church. 
as a young man into middle age, struggled with conversion. And finally, I remember that Thursday night sitting next to him in the bench during singing and watching him weep over those hymns because he knew what they meant. It was the first time I ever saw him cry. Saw him smile lots. He was a really happy kind of guy, at least on the outside. Found out later that a lot of those smiles was hiding a lot of pain. My parents were on, the vac- on vacation at the time. They weren't home when all of this happened, when he got his terminal diagnosis. My mom spoke with him often on the telephone. And she said, John, what made the difference? What changed? You've made so many false starts with God. What made the difference this time? He said simply, I realized I can't keep any of it. There's nothing, there's nothing that I can hang on to. I need to give it to God. Don't wait for those moments. Don't wait for a life that's been ruined by sin and the heartache that it brings. Come now while you're young. What would it have been if that rich young ruler had said, you know what, Lord, I'm going to do exactly what you're going to say. I'm going to follow you. Who knows what sort of a man he would have been in the kingdom of God. We'll never know. He went away sorrowful. And you know what? One day, all of those riches he trusted in were taken from him anyway. As I get older, I realize that there's something to be desired in this life. And it's this. A good end. A good end. For those from our congregation that have passed on and have found that good end, I say within myself, I wish I also can have that one day. To know that I'm going to a prepared place, ruled by a God who loves me, who has always loved me, even though I've been so unworthy. Isn't that worth giving up everything? You can't keep it anyway. You can't. It won't go with you. Don't waste. Don't waste your time. Don't wait. Don't turn away. May the Lord add whatever's lacking to what was said. Amen. This morning we heard a very poignant message on our eternal destiny and the choices we make and the decisions we make which will determine that. I'm so glad to see Brother Robbie here this morning and Sister Becky. It reminds us of our past how many have come to this church and they're sitting in our benches now, not just from our backgrounds from Europe, but from North America. And it sort of pains me that when 
we see these loved ones who have come from the neighbourhoods of Toronto and see the value in the gospel that is preached, which they never had a chance to, perhaps, from the backgrounds they came from. And then I see those that have come from our own backgrounds that have been coming to church as little children. They've been taught in Sunday school. That have been taught the gospel message. That have sung the gospel message. That have been given every single opportunity to hear the word of God that's able to save our souls. I pray that you'll not take it for granted. I pray that you will not leave to the final moments of your life. You know, at the funeral of Brother Steve Delich, I mentioned that on God's clock, the clock of our lives, if we divide our years into 24 hours, that Brother Steve was something like six minutes, if I remember correctly, to midnight before he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Sister Lily was so thankful that she gave her life regardless of how many minutes it was to midnight. But that's not guaranteed for everybody. Jesus said, or God said in his word in the book of Hebrews through the Holy Spirit, that it is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. Do you realize this is the fourth funeral in four consecutive months that many of us have attended? Or will attend, God willing. Do you realize that your time is not guaranteed here upon this earth? When that will be? Have you counted the cost? There is a formula. A formula that talks about the consequences of our decisions, the probability of what will, how those consequences will come about. It's called risk. Even if you're a, a mathematician or agnostic or an atheist, There's a risk with what you're taking. If you are wrong and you made the wrong decision, risk equals probability of something happening times the consequences of that happening. How much damage will it do? How much hurt will it bring? 
And even if you think that your risk or probability, should I say, of being wrong is 10 to the minus 10. If you are wrong, you multiply that by eternity, what number does it bring? You tell me. What number will that bring? 10 to the minus 10, let's say, times infinity. What is that? It's infinity. If you're wrong. And we believe that deep in your heart, you know that there's got to be a higher power. There's got to be a God, a creator of this universe. So which way would you choose? Which way will you go? How much risk are you willing to take? Or do you want to believe a Bible that has proven itself over and over and over and over again? As the brother mentioned, be as a child. Accept in simple truth what the Word of God says and can support itself. This is my prayer. This is our prayer. And unto him be the glory evermore. Amen. This concludes our service.